0: This is Transforming Culture, an MBC Podcast. Forming Culture Season 2, time has really flown by and I'm grateful for all the listeners who have been along for the ride. We only have a couple of episodes left this season, but for those of you who have stuck around with us, they're fantastic and I'm glad that you're here. This week in particular is exciting on a personal level because our guest Sunder Krishnan was my pastor growing up. I can say with absolute clarity that I did not understand as a young teenager what quality teaching I was able to listen to from the pulpit But I see it now and I'm so grateful that Pastor Sunder, as he will always be to me, joined us for a session during the summer at MBC. He was initially quite hesitant to speak at the Transforming Culture session, which you'll hear references to throughout his talk. But I think I speak for everyone working on this project when I say that there is so much value and learning to be gleaned from this episode. Sundar grew up in the capital city of New Delhi, India. He completed high school in 1961, graduated from the Indian Institute of Technology in 1967, and received his master's degree in mechanical engineering in 1969 from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in Boston. In June 1969, he joined the staff of Atomic Energy of Canada in Toronto, and most of his 11 years on staff were spent in safety analysis of nuclear generating stations. In 1971, he and his family began worshipping at Rexdale Alliance Church, and in October 1980, Sunder resigned from his position with Atomic Energy of Canada to join the pastoral staff of the church, where he served for nearly 36 years until his retirement in June 2016. His primary passions are teaching the word and mentoring the next generation. In 1971, he and Shamla were married. They have two married children and six grandkids. Let's listen in now to Sunder talk from this summer, talking about the social gospel and whether we've lost something from our understanding of how Jesus loves us.
1: When I left home this time, because my wife wasn't coming with me for a variety of reasons, Uh, she doesn't like to get involved in the details of technology, although she uses it. So when I'm home, I'm always fixing the wireless if it goes off and things like that. So I had to give her some instructions and there were several, now remember, now don't forget, now remember kind of statements. Uh, You can all recall being in some setting, some situation where you've had to say to somebody, whatever you do, remember, don't forget. Sometimes it's a matter of convenience. Please remember to water the grass three times a week or twice a week. But the worst that can happen if they forget it is brown grass. It'll recover. Something's a little bit more important. Make sure, please remember to deposit that check before 5 p.m. today. That can be a little bit more serious, especially if you've got a withdrawal coming up for which that you need to cover. Sometimes it can be critical. Remember to give the baby the medication before you put her down at 10 o'clock tonight. That's absolutely critical. Could be a matter of life and death. Now, let me create a hypothetical but realistic situation. You're a leader in a church, a lay leader, an elder, and you've been interviewing a missions committee person, someone who's coming to a mission uh, for a pastor position. And you ask a lot of questions, and they answer all those questions. They talk about their philosophy and theology of missions and the strategies and the tactics they would develop. And then you say, but, okay, that's all good. You're on. But whatever you do, please remember, only remember. How would you finish that sentence? Of course, you say, oh, you're kidding. The answer depends upon a particular situation that we're in. Absolutely right. But the early church faced a situation like that. And there we didn't have to get, Where church leaders were talking to another critical individual in an early developing mission of the church. And they said to him, this is good. We agreed with your calling. Only remember. What did he say? This is what he said. Not Luke rock, but the <laughs> <or me>. army. <laughs> Peter, James, and John were meeting with the apostle Paul. He had been converted miraculously, and he was coming after several years to meet the powers that be in the Jerusalem church. And they agreed that Peter was called to the Paul was called to the. Je- Gentiles and Peter to the Jews, and they said to him, all they asked, says Paul, was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I have been eager to do. So Paul, Peter, James, and John said, whatever we do, we need to remember the poor. Somewhere along the way, from the 1st century down to the 20th century, when I encountered the gospel, this thing got lost by the wayside, at least as far as the evangelical message that I heard which was all totally about me going to heaven, praying the sinner, confessing I'm a sinner, going, praying the sinner's prayer, and going to heaven. The social gospel, if I heard it at all, well, that was for the liberals. Somewhere along the way, we had separated what God had joined together. So what you often hear in weddings where you say, let no man separate what God has joined together, needs to be spoken over this as well. And so that's what I want to speak about today, to do what I do well, so that I don't try to pretend to be an expert when I'm not. But I know the scriptures well, and I know how they affected me in this area. As, I, as God slowly put those two things together in my own life and through me in the life of a church as well. So let's develop some biblical foundation. This is my clever idea here. It's very much a part of the gospel. It all began in 1975 when I read a book by Ronald Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It began a process that radically changed my attitude to material things and our responsibilities to the poor of this world. And the first thing I learned is that God identifies with the poor. So in Proverbs 14, chapter 3, it says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So negatively or positively, whatever you do to the poor, you do to God or don't do to God. Proverbs nineteen seventeen says the same thing. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. So this is obviously something very, very important to God as well. And Jesus, of course, who was God on earth came to say this, he said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, and he defined them in the context of the hungry, the poor, the disenfranchised, the imprisoned, the sick. He said, whatever you did it to them, you did it to me. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do. And there again, we see that close identification between God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the poor and the disenfranchised. Not surprisingly then, It proves to be an essential part of the gospel. Hence, we cannot relegate it. And since Jesus is the heart of the gospel, let's see what he has to say about this. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. When he began his public ministry, opening that scroll that we talked about on Sunday morning, connecting himself to the big story, he opened to Isaiah chapter 61 and opening words are, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, which is what the gospel is. He could have said, proclaim the gospel to the poor. Jesus opening words in his public ministry, put together what we had separated. To proclaim good news to the poor. And we have a couple from our uh, church Who've been working for many, many years in the Middle East, and they work primarily among the among the poor and the disenfranchised, finding leaders in local communities who have a passion for the poor, and coming alongside with their skills to develop them. And one of the first questions he said taught me to ask was always, "Sundar, if you know, if you know, if you want to know whether you're preaching the right gospel, ask yourself: Does it come across as good news to the poor or not?" Interesting little test that I'd never heard of from him. Later, John the Baptist sent some followers of his uh, to find out whether Jesus was really the Messiah. And so they came, a delegation came from John the Baptist and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? And what did Jesus say? Go back and tell John what you're seeing. And he gave a whole list of them. Go back and report to John what you've seen hard. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The gospel is being proclaimed. That that was a mark of the fact that he was genuinely the one that all Israel was waiting for. And later near the end of his earthly ministry, you remember he invites himself to the house of Zacchaeus. And and that incident has mostly been popularized in in the children's song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was... he. What we have missed in that, at least what I missed in my early uh, introduction to the gospel and my early journey, was what happened. Now, we don't know what they talked about. (laughs) All we know is that Jesus said, I have to come to your house today. And the next thing we read is this. "Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So that's, from that, should we guess that Jesus was giving him a lecture on the social gospel? I don't know, but it's interesting what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house. Interesting. I wouldn't have put it that way based on how I heard the gospel at first. How I heard the gospel at first would said something like, Oh, I have some good news for you. This chief tax collector that you guys hate, he just prayed the sinner's prayer. Salvation has come to his house. By the way, he couldn't have prayed the sinner's prayer because Jesus hadn't died and rose again. So what do you do? What's the gospel in a setting like that? No. Jesus had this declaration, the transformation of this man's life where he was a cheater and an extortioner and a chief tax collector going rich on the backs of his own people changed completely to obey the restitution laws of the Old Testament which demanded twice, and he said four times, and I will give half of my possessions to the poor, Jesus said, hey, that's evidence that he has had a saving encounter with me. That's, according to Jesus, one of the unmistakable results of having that saving encounter. As for Paul, he did exactly what Peter, James, and John told him to do, only remember the poor. So wherever he went among the Gentile churches, he took a collection He took a collection for the poor church back in Jerusalem, mostly Jewish people at that time, Uh, because of a famine, because Claudius the emperor had uh, expelled some of them from there. There was all kinds of difficulties and hardships there. So wherever he went to speaking to the Gentile churches, he instituted a collection, a weekly collection, that he was going to take back to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem church. And this is what he says here. He says, because of the service, this giving, by which you have proved yourself, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. And there is again of the gospel of Christ. Obedience to the gospel then involves a responsibility to the poor. In this case, specifically to the Jewish believers, it was a very important issue. Jewish Gentile unity was a huge issue, theological and practical issue in the early church. And Paul was saying by this, this is one way in which the Jewish believers in Jerusalem can be confident that you have actually encountered the Messiah because of their willingness to participate in this. So God identifies with the poor. It is an essential part of the gospel, yet the fact of the matter is most of us are very reluctant to give freely. Or to be involved in other ways with the poor. Uh, I I only know that because let me ask you this question: You walk into church and you hear the gospel, the message that day is about stewardship. How's your what's your reaction? Are you rubbing your hands in glee and saying, "Oh, I'm so glad I came here today"? Or are you saying, "Oh no, he's going to ask. It's going to cost me something. I should have stayed back home today." Maybe you're feeling like that tonight. Maybe you should have stayed home tonight. It's not surprising because that's the way it was with Israel in the whole Testament. God's people did not obey the laws relating to the poor. There's not much evidence, says the scholars that in spite of the importance of these commandments, that Sabbath, the gleaning laws where they were told not to reap right to the edge, but leave food for the poor. And especially Jubilee where land was to go back to the original owners so that everyone had at least one fresh start in life, so that there would be no one poor among them from generation after generation. That there's not much evidence that these laws were obeyed regularly. That's why the prophets regularly denounced Israel for not keeping Sabbath and Jubilee laws. Same thing in the New Covenant, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus' response would sort have of flunked any evangelism course, as I learned. He didn't answer the way I was taught to answer that question. Or even the way Paul answered the Philippian jailer. In the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus didn't say that. You know what he said? He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Uh, Not surprisingly, the man's face fell. Mine would too. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is not finished yet. Later on in the gospel, in response to the Pharisees criticizing him because he wasn't washing his hands properly before eating, and he, the Pharisees want to know, how come you're not washing your hands?" You know?" Jesus said this. It was a question of legalism. He could have answered the question so many different ways. Instead he says this, "Now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Interesting theory of sanctification, isn't it? (laughs) No obscure theory of how to become holy people. He said, give what you have to the poor and you're going to be clean on the inside. We don't pause long enough to look at these words from no one less than Jesus. Forcing us to radically rethink our very limited truncating understanding of the gospel. No, this wasn't about evangelism. Jesus was, it was actually, Jesus was awakening this man to the real bondage in his life. Because remember, he had said, I've kept all the commandments, but he'd broken the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And the point of Jesus' response to him was to show him, no, you haven't kept all the commandments, you broke the first one. And as Martin Luther pointed out to us so beautifully in his writings, every commandment is ultimately a violation of the first commandment. You have some other God before you, the God of heaven. Remember we said the fundamental temptation in the Garden of Eden was what? God is not good and God cannot be trusted to give you what is good. So you have to independently define what is good for you. That's why ultimately every sin is a violation of the first commandment. And he continues this this process of awakening us by jarring us with these kind of stories. Here's another one. This would rate for me as the least obeyed commandment in the whole Bible, certainly by me. Tell me what you think. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. or well, who else is left? Ah, if you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Anybody did this? I haven't. I've been a Christian for 61 years. I've had many of all the other categories, but not this one. Our tendency is to hang around with the people at our own social level and maybe sometimes do an upward mobility climb, but not downward. So these things are all there. They are from the mouth of Jesus himself, constraining me certainly to think and rethink. We have a huge blind spot when it comes to the tyranny of things in our life. <laughs> uh, Tim Keller, incredible man of God, great cult. He should be here speaking, by the way. Incredible analyst of culture as well as the gospel. Once he was doing a series on the seven deadly sins and his wife Kathy, a very wise woman, said to him, you'll get your least attendance when you preach on greed. Sure enough, he said, my least attendance when I preach on greed, because she said, most people don't think we are. Not until we are faced up with commandments like this from no less than Jesus. See, God, Jesus has to first reveal the condition of our heart. Here's another one. If we were asked, what was the sin that we associate with Sodom. Well, almost all of us would know what it is. In fact, the sin goes by the name, Sodomy. But you know what the prophet Ezekiel says to Israel? Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. Do you know that? How How many of us would have been able to answer even one of these four as the sin of Sodom? as opposed to what we normally associate with. Look at these. They were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and did not help the poor and the needy. That was the sin of sorrow. So th- this was my journey as I was reading this book. I was slowly learning all these kinds of things. And my heart was slowly and sometimes very quickly being exposed for what it really is and for the deep, radical shortcomings in my understanding of the gospel. God loves the poor. It's an essential part of the gospel. We have a reluctance to give and get involved. So now the question, how do we break out of this prison? How do we move beyond this to joyful obedience? Because that's what he wants us, right? Not by any command. Jesus doesn't deal with us. He doesn't sanctify us by making us feel guilty. Guilt and shame are two things that are the purvey of the devil, not of Jesus. We as human beings sometimes try to, more often, more often than not, try to motivate other people by shame and by guilt. God never motivates his people by shame and guilt. Our guilt is taken away in Jesus and he does not shame us. We are beloved children of the loving Father. How does he motivate us? <laughs> How does he get us to be this way? Each one must give as he has decided. And this is in the two longest chapters in the Bible, New Testament on giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where he's writing about the collection for the poor. Probably the two best chapters I've ever read that helped me to understand this. He said, each one must give as he decided in his heart. Nobody tells you. As you decide in your heart, not out of reluctancy, not under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful give. How does this happen? Remember, the gospel is good news. It's not a burdensome crushing series of commandments. If they crush, it is only to awaken us to the need of a savior and the need of empowering. But his goal is not to push us away. But when we crush people, when we sometimes manipulate people through guilt, it's to push them away from us or to make them feel worse, not Jesus. Any crushing at his hand is a tender breaking only so that he can remold us and fill us, and bring us back to himself. That's why it's good news. Or doesn't that God motivate? After his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples, showing himself over and over again. And then he gives them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, this full gospel, including all these things that he's talked to them about, the responsibility of the poor, the disenfranchised and the sick. And then he says, don't go. After he said in, in the alliance denomination that I serve, there used to be a, f- a saying that we were fond of Jesus' last command is our first concern, referring to the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But actually, that wasn't Jesus' last command. His last it was the second last command. You know what the last command was? Don't go. Don't go until you have received power from above man. Don't go until Pentecost. Don't go until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will receive power and you will be my witness. That's how Jesus empowers us through the Holy Spirit. And look what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Acts chapter 4, verses 32, 34, and 35. Uh, 3,000 people were added as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And Acts forty-two, 2, chapter 2, four, forty tells us about the Uh, effect that this has had, what kind of a community there was. Now it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. No, nobody told them. This wasn't communism. This wasn't forced redistribution of wealth or any social agenda like that at all. Because specifically, Peter told Ananias and Sapphira, who unfortunately deceived, attempted to deceive the people by pretending to give everything from the sale of a house, but they only gave part of it. You know what Peter said to Ananias? Wasn't the house yours before you sold it? Wasn't the money yours after you did it? There's no question of a forced communistic redisposition. This was a spontaneous work of generosity that the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of the people. And he said, there was no needy person from time to time. Those who owned land, the houses sold them on their own accord, brought the money from the sales and put it to the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anybody who had need. And this was the most amazing thing that the outsiders noticed about the early church. So first and foremost, God liberates us in this area by the work of the Holy Spirit. Augustine used to pray, command what you will, but give what you command. <laughs> I love that prayer. Command what you will, but please give what you command. <laughs> Enable me to do the very thing that you're commanding me to do, because I can't do it by myself. Secondly, God motivates us by reminding us of what's at stake for us. It's not just about the poor that are helped in whatever ways. It's about what happens to us, either positively or negatively, and both are things I mentioned in Scripture. First of all, negatively, he says, Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. In some way, our prayers before God are affected as we shut our ears to the hear of the, ears, the cries of the poor. I mean, shutting our ears, we don't do this. Often we're not close enough to even hear that cry. If we see something in the channel... We're watching a program, it breaks to a commercial, and it's about the poor and the suffering of the world. We go and take a commercial break ourselves, or we quickly flip the channel to something else. That's us face it, I've done it, done it because we're uncomfortable. We don't want to be confronted with the, the sorrow and the pain and the anguish, especially those that we can do something about. That's our natural reaction. We insulate ourselves, yet God said, this is serious with me. And it's not it's not as if God punishes us. Remember, He's not He doesn't force us and threaten us and frighten us. What then is He talking about here? He just says there are consequences. And the way, the way, if you will, punishments happen or consequences, they don't come like an angry father or mother who didn't get what they wanted. God is completely beyond any human need. God doesn't need anything. We don't give God anything by obeying him. We don't diminish God in some way by withholding from him. It's you and I who get affected in the process. And one of the things that happens is our souls begin to shrivel on the inside. When we are not generous, when we clutch too tightly, we start shriveling up on the inside. Uh, My wife had a friend who used to accompany them sometimes and they were singing and whatnot. And she told us once about her dad, who a wealthy man, Every September, he would start getting stomach aches, really severe, significant stomach aches. And the doctors found out, and they couldn't um, f- find out what was going on until they discovered there was nothing physically wrong with him. You know what he was, if he, uh, Christmas was coming, and he knew he had to buy gifts. And that was enough to produce a significant physiological reaction. And that's, that's the kind of concept we're talking about, not always necessarily physical. Our souls are shriveling up. Sometimes we see physical effects of that. It's called a poverty of spirit. Very wealthy people can sometimes suffer from what's called poverty of spirit. While poverty is not having enough, poverty of spirit is the fear of not having enough, even with a million dollars in the bank. Those are the kind of things God is saying, you want to be free from. I want you to be free from all this. I want you to have a free, joyful spirit on the inside. And so positively, Jesus says, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Now, this is not a uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is not the kind of stuff that you hear on television where they say, you give this, and you're going to get back 10 times more. Here's the seed. No, nothing like that. What, What then does he mean? Those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Let's come to the New Testament. Here's what Paul says. He says, the point is this, in the same passage that he's been teaching after he's telling them to give generously, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is the grace of the Holy Spirit that liberates us to live this way. And to make all grace abound to you, so that, notice this, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He who has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Three things are promised to those who give. Material sufficiency, not material abundance, like the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers tell us. Material sufficiency, so you will lack nothing. That's what God promises, not riches. What he says is, I will make sure that you never suffer because you gave. <laughs> Material sufficiency, spiritual abundance, a harvest of righteousness, and multiplied seed. He will Anything you sow, he's going to give you even more. Not to stash away in our banks, but to give even more, to enlarge our capacity for ministry. And by the way, I stand here today as a fruit of mission in my home country, because of one woman who believed this. We heard the home the message of the gospel in the home of a Canadian missionary who was in my country. Many, many years later, back here in, in Canada, in Toronto, he told me the story that when he was initially planning to come to our country, he couldn't come. He didn't, couldn't raise enough money for it. He was finally given an opportunity to speak at one particular conference in Winona Lake, Indiana, He was with Youth for Christ at that time. And he was given five minutes. He shared about his vision to go to our country. And nobody came to the front afterwards. The next morning, a lady came to him and said, my husband died recently, suddenly. He's left me with five children. And he has left me a legacy of $2,000. I want to give that to you so you can go. I know he will take care of me. I am the fruit of that person's harvest, uh, investment, I'm looking forward to seeing her in heaven. She probably doesn't even have an idea of the harvest of righteousness that has come from her willingness. to. She didn't give to the poor, but she gave to somebody who needed it. This is the kind of stuff that is at stake for us. So very quickly, as I draw this to a close and open it up for questions, what do we need to do? First of all, we need to repent. We need to begin with the condition of our heart. I know I need to repent, and I still keep repenting of this. Every time the scriptures show me, every time I read some of those commands, say, God, Take my heart again. You need to do something. Breathe the Holy Spirit upon my heart. And so one time I actually wrote a prayer to myself because I said, what would I do if I were the rich young ruler? Not that I'm rich. I'm certainly not young anymore. And I haven't ruled anyone. But compared to most of the people in this world, I have enough. What would I do if he said that? Would I just go away sad? So I actually wrote down, suppose that would happen. What would I actually say to Jesus? This is only by way of illustration. I probably want to say something like this to him. Lord Jesus, I'm terrified to hear you say that because I have so much and I realize that I'm in bondage to things. The thought of having to give them all up makes my heart grow heavy. At the same time, Lord, I want to obey you more than anything. So I fall at your feet and beg for your mercy. I acknowledge that I'm enslaved to things. Please help me to obey you in this area. That were my Those were my actual words that I penned up. I give them to you just by way of an example. You need to come up with your own words. But repentance is the place where we need to start. Secondly, this is important. Ask the Lord to bring a poor person into your life so that this isn't just an ethereal, conceptual thing out there in the distance, but that you have to deal with flesh and blood. My wife was shopping one day at Winners many years ago. Oh, no, sorry, many years. I should keep saying she's now 20... 22 years ago. And there was this lady that she saw there. And this lady all of a sudden had a, a, a baby in one of those uh, things that you carry, you know, I've even forgot the names of those things now. And uh, she held up this beautiful dress and asked my wife, what do you think? How do I look? So Sham got into conversation with her and said, so what is this for? She said, oh, this is for my baby's baptism. And uh, Sham said to her, well, you in, in, in baptism, tell me about which church do you go to? She said, well, no, actually not baptism in our church. We dedicate our children. But she said, I want to wear this for that. Sham said to her, that's very good, but have you committed your life to Jesus? If you're going to dedicate your your son to the Lord, you don't have to be dedicated. Oh, I'm backslidden. So she knew the language, you know. Anyway, to cut a long story short, this was December in Toronto, and she had high-heeled shoes. So Sham said to her, where do you live? I'll take you back. Anyway, Shem dropped her off, gave her a phone number, and a week or two later we got the call back where she was uh, in, in the country illegally, had got impregnated out of wedlock, and the father had disappeared. And she said, I don't want a handout. She said, I'd like to come and work. And I need some help. That began an interesting journey with this person that we've known for 22 years. My wife and I made a commitment to help that child anytime he needed throughout the uh, education process. Today, he's graduated from a university and he's working as a media consultant. You know. And we've had the joy all along the way. And one year for Christmas time, we decided because she never gets to take a break. A Cleaning ladies can't take any break because if she doesn't clean, she doesn't get paid. She can't pay her grocery bills. So one, one month we said to her, take a whole week off at Christmas and we'll pay you whatever you normally weigh work during the week. You should have seen the tears just flow down. She says, no one has." And, and please remember I told you all those things about myself so you won't think I'm a great hero. This is all because of my wife. I don't think I'd even talk to that woman for one minute. Not that I would ever be winners but if I was I probably wouldn't have talked to her at all. But she talked that's the kind of heart that she has and we've had the joy of knowing. and you know what? When you talk about me receiving, this woman of God knows how to pray. And if you ever ask her to pray for us, she'll drop her cleaning stuff, she'll walk up and down the room and not say anything at all for a while. And then, oh God! And then she'll start. Because the church that she goes to is called the Mountain of Fire and Miracles Church. (laughs) We needed people like that in our lives. I needed this poor woman to pray for me. And she prays for our children. And she's a joyfully godly woman. She loves to dance. She comes from Nigeria. She loves to dance. And so the children would often say, Paula, Paula, dance for us, you know, and she would just again drop down little little She's basically become a member of our family. You know? So pray. Ask God to bring an individual person into your life. He'll do it. You don't have to worry about it. It's not your problem. It's his. You have your heart in the right place, do it. Trembling, if you will, but do it and see what happens. Then thirdly, read. There's one book I'd encourage you to read. Rich Stearns, the president of World Vision USA, wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. It's probably a book-length amplification of the things that I talked to you And he talks about his own heart. He was a, he was a very wealthy uh, businessman, and God called him to become head of uh, World Vision. And he tells, because he tells the story in the book, I can tell you. He was fighting against this so badly at the thought of giving up all of these things. He literally went and crawled under his bed and pulled the sheet over his. And his 12-year-old son had to come and say to him, it's okay, dad. It's okay. He's very honest about it. It's good to read about. Those are real-life situations, people just like us, and what God has done in his life as a result of that. Amazing uh, book. Very, very helpful. It's called The Hole in Our Gospel. And then fourthly, learn to give wisely. That's sort of a giving. Not only to the local flesh and blood individual that I talked about, but to regularly be involved as far as the global poor. is going to slowly, as a result of my reading and getting, in, I got, I found out all about microcredit. Some of you may know what microcredit is. I knew nothing about it, but I learned about microcredit. Microcredit doesn't believe in just giving handouts. You know, it's the old Chinese proverb. You give a man a fish, you feed him one day. You teach him how to catch a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Microcredit is all about loans that you give to people who want to start enterprises, and you also teach them to save and to repay. They have a 96% repayment rate of their loans. And at the end of that time period, these persons now have a viable ministry. When I found out about microcredit, I said, okay, I'm investing whatever I'm able to in this area into microcredit. And then you stay involved. I stayed, asked for the reports from these places. I tried to get to know at least one or two people by name. Even though I will never see them myself. So when I pray for them, I learn to pray for them by name. So, so give, give uh, wisely. Find out, do some research on the organizations that are working most effectively on the board. And then invest in those places. Volunteer if you're able to. Pray for the people in there. Stay in. I used to periodically meet with people who were um, who involved in this. And in my own church, God put it upon the heart of two people. Uh, a couple. He's a cardiologist and she's a family lawyer who's, who's a stay-at-home mom. And God through a long story, which I might tell you uh, in Friday morning's message, I think it is, because it belongs better there, about connecting them with the poor in the country of Zimbabwe. And that was a vision that started for them in 2008, right about the time when I read the hole in our gospel. And God got me involved with that couple not only to legitimize them and in, the, in the eyes of our congregation because they were members of our congregation but I've been serving on the board of this organization as well and I've got to know so many of the people in Zimbabwe by name though I've never seen them you know, and pray for them on a regular basis so get involved and, this is one, and the last one is actually partnered with us. We're never meant to do this by ourselves. We can't, we, we can't lick this problem by ourselves. We need a like, like-minded community of people so we can encourage and strengthen one another because we don't all have the same gifts. By the way, God has given us gifts. He doesn't expect us to work in some strange way that is contrary to how he has wired us. So I just offered to him my spiritual gifts of teaching, the ability that I have to study, and to pastor and shepherd a congregation, and come alongside these two visionary people who have made umpteen trips to Zimbabwe, and slowly my heart began to go up and down with what their heart was going up and down with. And so that's the last part of it, and finally pray. Like everything else, it's God who's going to have to do this work. Anyway, that's a whirlwind tour of my journey into this. All in your hand and Luke's hands right now is what he's going to do with this stuff. But this is where I'm at. This is the one part of us, the social dimension of the gospel that I could speak with some kind of integrity because I knew about it. I grew in this. Uh, I've learned the scriptures from it. I've helped other people grow in this area. So I can, at least I can stand here with some integrity on this. Other people are going to have to come and teach you about all kinds of things that you really hoped I was going to talk about, but about which, unfortunately, I know nothing.
0: Again, I think Sundar's message is so amazing for all of us to hear, and I'm grateful that he said yes to speaking during the summer. We'll turn now to the Q&A that we did during the summer months. You'll notice a few clicks and pops. My microphone was dying during the podcast recording, and while I did my best to prevent the sound, a bit of it still bleeds through. One of these days, I promise we'll get a whole season without any audio glitches. But for now, enjoy this question and answer period with Sundar Krishnan. Thunder, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, You know, we've just finished recording uh, the talk this evening and you've answered questions for people and all that in the room. But we're now getting to record a little bit extra. And I'm, I'm just really excited to hear from you. You know, you you talked a lot tonight about your own personal experience. And that's something we're hoping for because each of us as Christians has our own personal experience of all of these issues that we talk about, whether it be the social gospel or inclusion when it comes to LGBTQ debates and things like that. And so I just really appreciate your your candor and your willingness to go personal because it means more. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can continue that now. Um, you know, as as I was listening tonight, it really just became clear that This isn't a faraway issue. This is something that should be quite near and dear to every Christian. And you talked about, you know what, God has brought together, let no man separate, and how we have done this work seemingly, maybe in the North American church or just in the Western church of separating poverty from the rest of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess one of my first questions coming out of that, you know, is that something that happened by accident? Or do you think that's just kind of happened because we we feel awkward about it? I know we were talking with some people tonight who said, uh, you know, they feel really strange because they want to love everybody, but they also feel weird around poverty. It's that kind of idea of walking by someone who's on the street and mm. maybe they're panhandling and looking for a handout and you're not sure what to do. So you don't even look them in the eye. Is this something in the West that we've just gotten used to and we need to get over? Uh, you also mentioned the idea that there's, it is kind of a liberal thing to think about in some ways. We're trying to maybe think about reclaiming some of it and owning it as, as the evangelical church.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, there are people who are very good at analyzing trends over centuries. And, uh, you know, we went from the age of enlightenment to modernism to postmodernism and things. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. I haven't lived long enough right. and I haven't read a lot in those areas. And I would suspect, if I were guessing, there are probably two or three factors that are at work. And again, I can start with myself. I think uh, it just our own journey, like my own journey, began uh, with the study of the book of Romans. Uh, and it was written from, I suspect, from what I didn't know then, was a Reformed emphasis with a focus on personal justification. You know, how do I get right before God? So the whole gospel from the very beginning was uh, presented in terms of my relationship with the Holy God, the sin dimension, you know, of it. And so that's what took up my whole time. And as I read it, it was there in the Scriptures. And after a while, uh, the milieu that you're in, and I became a Christ follower through a parachurch organization, Youth Unlimited, it's called today. Uh, the local church was almost uh, insignificant in the country that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And so I had no ecclesiology of any kind at all, no corrective of any kind. And so this was it. Uh, so I would suspect if, on the other hand, somebody grew up. Uh, and had a different trajectory of entrance into the gospel from what one might call, for better want of a better word, a liberal, socially oriented church, they would have thought of the gospel in terms of uh, corporate sin management. You know, Dallas Willard in his book, right. uh, The Divine Conspiracy, talks has a brilliant chapter called The Gospel of Sin Management. Uh, evangelicals talk about personal sin, whereas liberals, quote, would talk about corporate sin as well, right. and each to the exclusion of the other. Right. So we very quickly degenerate into either or kind of things. And the both and always seems very difficult for us to keep in mind, you know? Yeah. And, and I've discovered in my Christian life as I've grown, so much of it is not an either or, but a both and uh, kind of thing in there with that gray in the middle, you know, as well. So that's probably one contributing factor. The other contributing factor I would say is that we live in a land of plenty mm-hmm. and uh, one very interesting study they've done, but uh, at least two of them, I would say, one is Statistics Canada shows, that the higher your income, the smaller the percentage of your income you actually give away. But uh, interesting, can be counterintuitive, yeah. right? But we don't. Because we tend to think of it in absolute dollars, not in terms of proportional giving, you know? Right. And this business of the tithe has been so emphasized that this 10% number is in the mind of so many Christians. Not that most of them even tithe, I think the number is something like 2.4% or something like that. Yeah. But even the tithe, no one has stopped to actually look at it. There were very specific amounts in the Old Testament. Everything was prescribed in the New Covenant. Paul says, you give according to you, whatever you deserve, according to how you have prospered. So the New Testament focuses on proportional giving, not percentage giving. So in fact, the more we make, the larger the proportion of it we are supposed to be releasing for the kingdom. And it's there in the Gospels, but this preoccupation with either the personal dimension of sin as opposed to the corporate uh, and salvation, and secondly, the, uh, the preoccupation with the tide and a percentage approach to do I give, even though we don't even do that, as opposed to this proportionality, would be a second factor. And the third factor, I think, is another study where they did, where they asked people who made X amount of money, 20,000 to 200,000, I think was the range, how much money would you need to be happy? Everybody, no matter where they were, mentioned a number twice as much. Mm. So the 20,000 person said, I need 40 grand to be happy. 200,000 said, I need 400 grand to be happy. So there's something about even money and possessions that seems to have a downward spiral or a tightening grip on yourself. And we are far more affluent. That doesn't mean people who have less can't be covetous or greedy because Jesus spoke most of his words to a very poor people. Right. And yeah. so the poor people can be just as greedy, uh, just as. Uh, victims to the tyranny of things and stuff like that but those are three factors that i think uh, yeah. personal history how you enter the salvation mode as it were secondly this issue of proportionality versus percentage giving and thirdly the crippling effect of even having much
0: yeah and you know the bible says pretty clearly you can't serve two masters yeah, right, right exactly yeah. um, and yet i think we're trying especially in the evangelical west we're trying to do that dance right uh, instead of just giving everything to god and trusting for sufficiency which i know mm-hmm. we're probably going to talk about Um, You made a good joke and I I laughed about it earlier and I'm laughing even now as I think about it when you said, you know, if a Christian church member walks into a church on a Sunday morning and you find out that the topic of the sermon is going to be about stewardship or giving or tithing or whatever, everyone rolls their eyes and go, oh, here we go again. You know, it's a building fund coming up or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, there is maybe a little bit of a perception or a stereotype that Christians can be stingy Mm -hmm. um, and that can come from a whole bunch of things like you just talked about. Um, Is that, is that, uh... Something we're wrestling with in our hearts is that cultural phenomenon. You know, we see and read about Christians in other places around the world who are just so giving and loving and kind. And perhaps those are stereotypes as well. You know, I, as you know, I spent some time living in Malawi in Southern Africa um, and I saw a lot of generosity. I saw some stinginess and some poverty of spirit as well, but just a ton of generosity with people who have very little. Um, And so that's certainly been my personal experience. Is that something that we need to wrestle with in our hearts or is it cultural? In our churches, this kind of idea of stinginess about giving.
1: Well, I think like so much of our Christian life has to do with the heart, because you know it says, "Out of the heart comes so many mm-hmm. things." Jesus said that, so that would certainly be the place to start. What's going on inside of me, myself? And I think that this fear of not having enough is a, is a real danger. This is what one person called the spirit of poverty. No matter how much, I, what if I need more? What if I don't have enough? And we see enough of the misery of poverty around the world that there's that fear. Uh, If our faith and trust in God is not solid enough in this area, because Jesus said, look at the sparrows, look at the field. Yet why are you so anxious? Don't be so worried. And and yet we continue to worry. Uh, So it must be rooted in some, some dimensions of faith as well. Is God sovereign? Is God able? Uh, And so that fear that applies to many other dimensions of our life, I think comes into this this fear of not having enough. And so when Jesus puts his finger on that and said, you cannot serve God and money, it's interesting, he is the only thing that he ever elevated to the status of a rival Mm. God was money. And I've asked myself why, and the answer that I've come up with, and it's not unique, but it's what i come up with, is that if you look at it, Money is the only thing that promises to give what only God can give. Because uh, Tim Keller points out in his book, Counterfeit God, that there are surface idols and root idols. And when we see money as an idol, the love of money, it's only a surface idol. The root idols are what money can get. For some people, the root idol is acceptance. If I have money, I can move with the people. I can dress like the way we do. I can wear Nike shoes. And so I get accepted. So acceptance is the real idol. For other people, money is power. It enables me to uh, have influence in in the political realm or in whatever realm I'm in. And so, uh, its power becomes the uh, driving force, the the hidden uh, idol, as opposed to the surface idol. For other people, it's popularity. For somebody else, it's security. Mm. Uh, Whereas all these things, belonging, uh, influence, uh, security, are things that God promises. Right. So look at it. Money is the one thing that promises. And superficially, it seems to deliver. Because in the realm of visible reality, yeah, people who have money have influence. People who have money have, uh, do this. They seem to be carefree, like Psalm 73. Yeah. Oh, and I look at the people of the world. They have all these things. They are carefree. But look at me, God, you know? Yeah. So it's a problem that's been all the time. But that's visible reality. Invisible reality is what is doing to their spirits. And we don't see that. And that's when it becomes an act of faith to say, can I trust God? Uh, And as I mentioned a few times in this uh, conference already, the fundamental temptation of uh, the devil approaching Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, if you boil it down to his essences, is God is not good, and God cannot be trusted to give you what is good. Therefore, you have to independently determine what is good. And I think that's operating as well. Uh, one person called the idol, the heart an idol-making factory. So if we have all these root idols that money is the surface idol that seems to promise. So we are afraid to part with it.
0: You talked a lot about sufficiency tonight out of mm-hmm. Second Corinthians. And I think it goes to what we're just talking about mm-hmm. now and, and kind of wondering about because uh, for each person, sufficiency can be different, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even in our own house, you know, my wife and I uh, are not the same. I'm, I'm someone who likes to buy um, good quality products that will last, where she might be someone who buys something at the dollar store right. and says, it's good enough, and it'll right. get me through. Right. Uh, you know, recently, our, our cold water tap had some buildup of calcium or something, so it wouldn't turn very easily. So temporarily, we started brushing our teeth with hot water, which is not a very pleasant thing. I don't know why it is it is like that. Um, and I wanted to get it fixed. And she's like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I was like, what do you mean don't worry about it? I, I don't want to brush my teeth with hot water. I don't want to drink hot water before I go yeah. to bed. Um, and it just kind of highlighted the difference. Not between, to mention the lead in the lead well, pipe. I mean, yeah, let's <laughs> not even go there. But, you know, it was just funny to think kind of, you know, if I hadn't pushed, I wonder if that hot, that cold water, t- it's fixed now, Yeah. you know, but it it wouldn't it have stayed broken in for how long? Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's who she is and that's okay. And, and God has matched us together well in that way because it does mean that sometimes she has to remind me it's not that important. Yeah. Just let it go. And sometimes I need to say, this is worth fixing, um, you know. But sufficiency, and and you talked tonight about abundance as well, right? And how God provides sufficiently for us in terms of resources, but He provides spiritual abundance. Right. Um, how can a discerning Christian figure out if something is just sufficiency or if it's abundance? You know, I'm yeah. I'm saving for my kids to go to no, college, it's, it's, and that's a good thing. Yeah. But that could look like abundance yeah. if someone else says, "Well, I have no food on the table. Can I right. borrow some of your college fund to feed my children?" Yeah,
1: it's so difficult, right? And so. Again, I can only suggest two or three principles that have helped me a lot, because usually, as uh, C.S. Lewis said in, the devil always sends errors into this world in pairs, so that in reacting against the one, we fall headlong into mm-hmm. the other. Uh, and so you got this uh, uh, voluntary poverty at one end of the spectrum, Mother Teresa, Sisters of Charity and things like that, and way over the other end, the kind of Western-oriented callousness almost to the poor that comes in. and. How do we find this balance? The next realization that came to my mind was, I learned that from Eugene Peterson, balance is not a good word. Tension is a much better word Mm. because balance is static. Find the right balance and stay with this for the rest of your life. No, tension is dynamic and you're moving all the time at different stages in your life. Two principles helped me more than anything else. Number one was Paul said, "Each, each one, you must give cheerfully, not out of compulsion. Each one should decide in their own heart. It's amazing, isn't it? Because old covenant said ten percent, ten percent of this herd. and some people say uh, another ten percent every third years was twenty-two percent. So there's all kinds of discussion about it. But was a specified number. Now nobody has to. How long do you have to pray to determine how much of your income to give if you're supposed to give ten percent? Yeah. You how many how many conversations? have com- to pray. How many conversation do, do you have to have with your wife about this? Yeah. None. But if all of a sudden Paul says, "Decide in your own heart." Now you have to pray about it. Now you have to think about it. Now you and your wife, and you mentioned your differences, yeah. have to talk about it. Your yeah. passions are different. So I often got to asking myself, what is God's real agenda when he asks us mm. to give? Is it not really about relationships? Is it not really about this relationship? The horizontal relationship with my spouse and teaching yeah. my children, and then the relationship with the people who are asking. You know? yeah. So that was a very helpful thing. Rethink everything in terms of relationship, not in terms of dollar value. And remember, if each person decides in the heart, there is the glorious freedom of the new covenant, but there's the awesome responsibility to decide properly as well, which Mm -hmm. means you have to examine it. So start with the heart because you have to decide in your own heart. So then the next question was, how do I decide within my own heart? And this is where it was very helpful for me. Uh, Rather than looking at, Percentages, because the New Testament focuses on proportional giving, but doesn't tell you what proportion, okay? Right. So I'm back to square one in that sense. So how do I determine what is the right proportion? So I came up with this plan for me and my wife, which has worked well for us, is to look at our, keep track of our spending, because you won't know where it's going unless you keep track of it. Yeah. And we identified four broad categories. Living, which is the food, shelter, clothing kind of thing. Uh, giving, which is obvious, what you give away saving, which is for future needs, and celebrating. And the difference between celebrating and uh, living is you put gas in your car to go to work, that's living. You put gas in your car to drive to Florida for a holiday, that's celebrating. So you keep track of those four things and then ask yourself these questions. If I compare my giving as a percentage of my total, what's that look like? Does it look reasonable to me? More than that, what is the direction in which it's going? Mm. If the overall pie is becoming bigger, is this becoming bigger or smaller? So not perfection, but direction is another principle. So that's one thing that helps. Secondly, I com- how do I compare my giving and my saving? If I'm saving in the hundreds and giving in the thousands, I don't need to ask any questions. If I'm celebrating in the hundreds and giving in the thousands, don't worry, celebrate. <laughs> because celebration was a discipline. You're supposed to celebrate. Yeah. On the other hand, if I'm celebrating in the thousands and giving in the thousands, I probably need to take another look at the celebration. If I'm celebrating in the thousands and giving in the hundreds, I've got a radical reorientation to do. So keep track of your money. Look at these, ask these questions. My, sa- my giving as opposed to a percentage, my giving compared to my saving, and my giving compared to my celebrating. How does that look? These are qualitative assumptions. But the whole New Testament is qualitative. Each man decides in his own heart. Give cheerfully. What is it? We can't tell it. So what is right for one person is wrong for another. None may not be right for another person. But have the conversations with God. Have the conversations with one another. And have the conversations with other people who might be able to look at blind spots. Paul Tournier, the Swiss medical doctor, a story that I found amazing. As a doctor, he made a lot of money. And he was planning to take his whole family on a cruise but he wanted some input from others. He said, I would overlook, either from his office window or somewhere, uh, some uh, um, day, day laborers, workers, skilled yeah. workers, blue collar workers working, and they would take their lunch break. So he walked over to them and showed them his budget, and said, I'm planning to take my family on a cruise. What do you guys think about it? He had a complete stranger yeah. who made a lot less than him, and it so happened, this kid, they said, go to it, Doc, enjoy yourself, you know? yeah." Don't know what they thought, don't know what the reason was, but are we, are we willing to let somebody else look into mm. how we are spending and speak into us? And that fierce, rugged individualism of North America may also play into it. But, but those two principles, decide in your own heart, proportional rather than percentage, and do this fourfold comparison and ask yourself these questions and then give freedom for somebody to come up with a different answer than yours.
0: One of the audience members tonight asked uh, a good question. It was right at the end where he said, how do I, what do I do if I'm nervous about the resources I'm giving and not being able to trust that they're going to be used well? Right. And that connects a little bit with what you're just right. talking about there, right? Because it's one thing I can give away in the thousands. Yeah. But if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> if I'm casting my pearls before swine right. or whatever, like giving to someone and then suddenly, you know, it's being used for an, an abusive yeah um type of thing alcohol drugs you know Mm. and there's tons of things people gamble right Mm. and and just waste tons of money on gambling um how what would you say to someone who's worried about you know i want to give i want to be generous but i am deeply concerned about where i'm giving to um you know i shared the story with you earlier my wife we live downtown toronto young and blue like right in the heart of the city she couldn't walk to the subway without passing Five or six people who were street involved in some way, mm. panhandling, but she didn't feel good about handing out cash. And so she bought gift cards, you know, $5 Tim Hortons gift cards. She'd buy 50, you know, a month, $50 mm. a month or something. That's 10 gift cards. Mm. And then we discovered through a series of connections with a group we were volunteering with that a lot of those gift cards are then just being traded for things that she's trying to avoid giving the <coughs> cash for. And mm. it, it just became a burden to her in some ways. <coughs> um, that was hard. And she, she wrestled with it because she wanted to be generous. Okay. And yet... She felt like it was a misuse of God's resources that really he didn't trust her with these resources. Now she's responsible for handing them out. You know, what would you, how would you encourage a, a believer who wants to do it well, but is really concerned about the way it's being used? Okay,
1: this is really good. And you know, again, it's interesting. Uh, as, as, as Being a pastor for 36 years, I've learned, and as I've grown myself, most people want clear-cut Yes. Answer. Do this. Don't yeah. do that. And I'm coming back with principles all the time. It's like when my children, when they start coming of age, and family devotions, when they would ask a question, I would ask the question back, yeah. and they would be frustrated no end. <laughs> Dad, you to me supposed the answer. answer my yeah, just exactly. Give me the answer. Yeah. So again, Isn't that what pastors are for? Just yeah. to give us
0: answers, right? We don't have to read our Bibles. Yeah, yeah.
1: Again, three principles. Number one, I would say, yes, you are responsible, so that's good. I'm glad you're asking the question. Some people would say, and I think there's merit in that to say, look. Your job is to be generous and respond to the need. You don't need to figure out all those other things. You know, the, your biggest one, and, and that's probably a great a great viewpoint for people who are just starting out learning to break the tyranny of things in their life. It's more important that you give and not stymie your, your impulse to give. Doesn't mean you can't change your approach later. Mm. But to begin with, the bigger issue is a problem in your own heart. Maybe you shouldn't be asking questions or rationalize that. Just give it. That's one thing. Responsibility, what shame would it take? Uh, you might say, can I, can I do it in kind instead of money like uh, Alyssa did? And then even there, it, it's not a perfect solution to, to that. Uh, another principle learned was if you are going to say no, because you have a good idea, it's not going to be used properly, look them in the face, treat them with dignity. Mm. When you say no, don't do a bypass around them. You know, that was my problem. So I've learned to slowly, deliberately walk past them, to look them in the eye when I have to say no. So maybe there comes a time to say no. At the macro level, when it's not $5 or $10, but you're looking at 200, 500, 1,000, you need to do some research for the organization that you give. Don't give quick, knee-jerk responses. You know, so wait, oh, do they want, I need to find out a little bit more about that. I personally, for example, maybe scandalous to some people, when there's a global crisis of some kind, like an earthquake in Turkey, although in this particular case I do give, I generally don't because lots of what I call guilt money flows in at that time. Right. All kinds of people who never give at that time give to an emergency. But who's going to give to a program to dig wells in Mali over a five-year period? Yeah. Completely unglamorous. Yeah. So I find out a little bit more about what is happening. Is this strategic? And I, I talked about the idea of contextual symbiosis. It's a fancy word for simply saying there's relief and there's development. In the early stages, when basic needs are needed in a culture, they're not ready for anything else. You've got to give them food, shelter, clothing, disease control, all those kind of things have to happen. When that begins to get stable, then you can kind of up the ante a little bit and move responsibly onto the other person as well. And I think even the question of where you bring the gospel into the picture also comes at that, at that point, I think. First meet their needs. So those are a few suggestions I would we'll give.
0: It's interesting, you know, you talked a little bit tonight about microloans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was living in Malawi, I had the opportunity to work with an organization that was doing what they called village savings and loans. And I, you talked about it, I, I would say the same, that it was life-changing to see how the money that was lent to a community stayed in the community mm-hmm. and, and pulled people out of poverty using uh, this kind of microloan program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the kind of thing that's very easy to get behind because when you see the benefits and you see how well it's working out, there's no, um, there's no fear. Mm-hmm. There's no fear of doing anything there. Um, but something you said also triggered a thought. I know there's a pastor, a friend of mine, who's a pastor who said, I don't make any decisions as a pastor for benevolence on my own. Mm-hmm. I always make that in a, in a committee type decision. Like there's a group of us who make that decision. For sure. And so when someone comes to the church and says, I need help, they say, great. Um, you know, no one gets into a crisis or very rarely, I would say, that people get into a crisis immediately, right? Like if the rent is due, you have to pay it tomorrow. You've known for 30 days you've had to pay the rent, but you came today and there's a pressure there. And and so he's had to learn to say, I understand there's a crisis for you, but that crisis, as much as we want to solve it, we can't solve it the next 24 hours. We will talk and meet about how we can help you long term, but it's not going to happen there. And and that was something that was freeing for him because it gave him the ability to say... I need to think about this.
1: Oh yeah, I think the corporate dimension is so important. We were involved in a mentoring group, for example, where one or two couples were very, like one person for his 40th birthday had decided that he would treat himself to a good car. Uh, with a certain amount of dollar value. And so he sent it to all of us and said, what do you guys think? This is the car I'm thinking of buying. This is how much it's going to cost. Feel free to speak into it. He he cultivated what what they or he and his wife cultivated what they called fearless truth tellers in their life. Right. To speak into those kinds of great idea.
0: Yeah. Well and, and even taking that corporate sense and, and moving it relationally into my marriage, for example, yeah. if, if I see yeah. a need, saying I do not make these decisions without consulting my so partner okay. first, right? right? So my husband or my wife, whoever it might be, saying, this is a group decision, which creates that relational tension that you talked about. Um, you know, my wife and I—she's a saver, I'm a spender—and yeah. God has designed it that way, and He has blessed both of us with each other because I have taught her about generosity in some cases, and she has taught me the value of saving to be generous, right? Exactly, uh, in an incredible way—that's such a gift, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. And so. Yeah, just taking that corporate principle and putting it in a relational context is really yeah, interesting. Totally.
1: And then and then I think where a husband and wife is concerned to realize that we may have different passion areas. Both want to give, but right. to different things. Yeah. And so we've got to
0: give room for that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And being okay with that too, yeah. saying, you know, it's <laughs> we in our we have a family budget and you know, we have what we call personal money. It's about yeah. fifty dollars a month. That yeah. We don't have to justify to that's each other. exactly what we do. And, do. and Alyssa's so gonna important. kill me for saying this. Yeah. I love Star Wars. You know, I would buy a Star Wars comic book or whatever. But she's she was interested in taxidermy a little while ago and she bought a book on taxidermy taxidermy and in a million years i would never see in my budget a book on taxidermy and i would love to judge her for that but she's well you bought that star wars comic that i care very little for i'm allowed to buy my book on taxidermy exactly but it's interesting thinking even in a giving sense you know whether it's the end of a tax return or something if you get a tax refund saying we're setting aside some money to give and then allowing each person to choose to give generously to an organization that might not regularly see it because giving out of that sense of generosity and out of this of the excess of a tax refund or something like that. What a gift. And because then it's joyful, right? God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, So no, that's, I love that principle of kind of making decisions together and then releasing people to their passion.
1: And then I just add one more thing that when we do at the larger level of giving to organizations that do what we cannot do because they do it corporately, especially overseas and stuff like that. Part of the dimension of responsible giving is to find out about the organization that you're giving to and expect and read evaluations yeah. Uh, like one of the organizations that I give to, um, I did some research on that and discovered it was rated one of the best and most responsible. So you're able to give much more freely in that case. Yeah. And, and really loving. I, I personally have been supporting
0: connecting to Malawi. So supporting the work that's happening there right. and just affirming uh, either individuals or organizations that respond and exactly. give reports. How did it go? Right. Like right. It's, it's one thing to ask for money. It's another thing to have to follow up yeah. and say, this is how it went. And especially if it didn't go the way we yeah, and did. Yeah, ask for the reports. So, yeah. They're so important. And, and right? because it holds people's feet to the fire in a good way to hold account- accountability is good, mm-hmm. right? You talked, I think you called it fearless truth telling. Right. Accountability is good.
1: Um and then last... I also find praying, praying for the things that you're giving to, mm-hmm. or giving to the things you're praying for was some, another principle I learned yeah. fairly early Linking on. them together. Right. Yeah.
0: My last question for you tonight, um, and again, this is from an audience member. Uh, Is there a difference between a secular response to poverty? There's lots of people who don't follow Jesus who don't want to see the poor poor. They want to see them, you know, to teach a man to fish or whatever, or Uh, just alleviate poverty, whether it's an emergency global crisis or long-term systemic poverty. Is there a difference between a secular response to poverty and a Christian response to poverty? I think so, but I'm curious on your thoughts on that. I
1: I think very much because uh, as, as an old saint in our church used to say, uh, in what we would call in this question, a secular response to a poor person, they now become a non-poor person who still desperately needs, uh, whose life is still not okay. A poor, selfish person now becomes a rich, selfish person. A poor, greedy person becomes a rich, greedy person. Uh, A poor person who's harsh with other people in relationships will become a rich person who's harsh in relationships. And so, all human beings need that soul transformation. So obviously, both hand would be the best thing to do, which then requires two things. Uh, don't settle automatically, oh, because this organization is Christian, that's where it's going. They may be doing a very poor, irresponsible job, whereas you've got a secular organization that's doing a responsible job, and at the moment, no one else is doing it. It becomes important to work through that. So it goes back again to finding, is this work being done well? Is it being done responsibly? And what is most needed at this moment? Who can deliver on the ground at this particular point? Start there doesn't mean you have to remain there. But if you find... One that ministers to body and soul, then obviously that would be the place to go, right?
0: Sundar, so, listen, thank you so much for the time you've spent. Uh, you know, you know, and I know. And I'll probably say this in the intro that I haven't recorded yet, but you have been an influential part of my life for decades now. And just so appreciate getting to hear your thoughts on this very specific topic. Yeah. Uh, as non-expert as you might claim to be, yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that you've brought so much thought and integrity to it. And so uh, we're praying for you, for Shamala, and for everything that you do, even in retirement. There's no retirement yeah. in the Bible, and you certainly have proved that. And yeah. we just are so grateful for your ministry here at MBC uh, this week and going forward. Thanks so thanks. was thank
1: so a good stretch for me. appreciate I'm that. I'm glad. Thank you Lord.
0: All right. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you again, Pastor Sunder, for your insight and vulnerability on an important topic. We are so glad that you chose to say yes, even though I'm sure you really did want to say no when we first asked. Next week is our final episode of season two, and we have our friend Lawson Murray here to talk to us about how we can consider parenting the next generation. Lawson is a fantastic speaker, and you'll find his South African charm disarming and fun. We'll see you then. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend, subscribing on your favourite podcast app, or following along on NBC's social media pages. If you really want to show some love, leave us a rating and a review. It's the best way to get new listeners tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Centre. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio recording by the Summer 2023 AV Team and the theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina tabakal See you next week for another episode of Transforming Culture. I need
2: to know there is justice in right And that you're building a city